So first of all, hi. It's great to be here. Uh, I also want to say something before he gets to escape. Um, I get to do this a lot. As a matter of fact, it's most of what I do now, and which means I meet a lot of pastors. And I just want to say, um, your church is well-led. It is well-loved. It is well-taught. And... Um, and it may be, hey, Chris, there's another pastor right here from SoCal. Um, and it may be because I'm an old guy and he's not. Um, I'm just, I, I'm proud of Lance, and, and let me tell you why. Um, he has stayed faithful to God, faithful to his wife and his kids, faithful to the Bible. And some people aren't these days. He has stayed faithful to this church through ups and downs, and most pastors don't do that. And he, it, his faithfulness has been a great model for every other pastor in this region and a great gift to this church, and I hope you know how fortunate you are to have him. So Lance, I just want to publicly thank you. So. Love you, man. Yeah, hey, and by the way, by the way, Bridgeway, if it's not good enough to have Lance... Then you add Parnell Lovelace. Who is the best dressed pastor in the world, okay? feel like a slob. I don't even own a bow tie. Um, so, okay, y'all ready? Let's get to work. Would you reach in uh, and grab your message notes out of your outline? And if you have a Bible, would you turn to Nehemiah chapter 1? If you're not sure what it is, go to Genesis, hang a right, you'll run into it, okay? And while you're doing that, I want to, uh, I want to get personal to start this. My wife and I, Carol, um, have four kids. We've been married a long time. We have four kids. We had two boys. We thought we were done having kids. And then she contracted pregnancy a third time. <laughs> and that turned out to be identical can't tell them apart, twin daughters, okay, uh, Leslie and Christy. And a while back, Leslie, they're all grown now, but Leslie came home uh, and said, I have to write a paper on a leader. And I went to the professor, and he knows who you are, so he said, I could write a paper on you, Dad. So she said, so I'm writing a paper on you. And, and I, she said, and I have, tw anybody here a parent? She goes, I have 20 questions, and you have to answer them all Honestly, I thought, we, we actually, I said, let's go to the jacuzzi and sit in the jacuzzi and do this. I thought, I'm going to end up with hot water. Let's start there. So we, we go to the jacuzzi. We talk for two hours. Look at prunes at the end of it. And, and then her last question was her best question. She looked at me and said, what is the most important thing you do as a leader? Of everything, what's the single most important thing you can do as a leader, as a pastor? As a, the, and I looked at her and said, that's easy. And I am hoping that this totally transforms some of our lives here this morning. I looked at her and I said, by far, the most important thing I do is this. Make sure I stay encouraged. It's make sure I stay encouraged. And she looked at me like, you are like, really? And I said, think about it. I said, if anybody thinks about it deeply enough, they'll come to the same conclusion, okay? It's the most important thing. You're a mom. It's the most important thing. I looked at her and I said, think about it for a second. If I'm not, if I'm discouraged, I'm never going to be the pastor God wants me to be. The last 
thing America needs is discouraged pastors. If I'm not encouraged, I will never be the leader. God, there are no visionary dreamer, let's have a great future, discouraged leaders. If I'm not encouraged, I will never be the communicator. God wants me to be. Hey, I'm ready to teach the Bible. I'm kind of discouraged, so you all study for yourself. The, um, if I'm not, and I, I actually got choked up. I looked around and said, honey, and if I'm not encouraged, I will never be the dad you need me to be. And I will never be the husband mom dreams up I could be someday in the future. <laughs> and if you guys know what I'm talking about? And, and, and because here's the deal. The cover to cover, I mean, the Bible, God, crystal clear, 1 Californians, chapter 13, verse 13, says this, these three things remain, these are big deal values to God, so big, they all remain, faith, hope, and love. We major in faith, we major in love, nobody ever talks about hope, and the problem is this. If you're taking notes, just the right top of your outline, we'll get into Nehemiah in a second. Discouragement precedes destruction. Discouragement precedes destruction. I can't find anybody who self-destructed their life. I can't find anybody who self-destructed anything where discouragement arrives first. It's the quicksand that sucks their soul in, and then they wreck their life. Nobody's ever come up to me and said, man, I am so encouraged about my marriage, I'm getting a divorce. I am so encouraged about Bridgeway, I'm leaving Bridgeway. I am so encouraged about my job, I'm quitting. I'm so encouraged about school, I'm dropping out. I'm gonna give you a definition of discouragement. We use a baseline here. Discouragement is the anesthetic that the devil will use on you just before he reaches in, carves out your heart, and ruins your future. Discouragement will wreck your emotional life, wreck your spiritual life, stop you from dreaming about the future, and destroy your relationships. It is a massive, massive thing, okay? And well, here's what I want to say. I want to actually introduce you to the most discouraged by in the Bible. Aren't you glad you came this morning? <laughs> and these are either on your notes or in your Bible. You got a choice either way. But Nehemiah in chapter one, Nehemiah gets really bad news, okay? And it starts with this. Nehemiah, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. So he is not in Jerusalem. We'll come back to that and say, Han and I, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and then I asked him about Jerusalem. Now, some of you are going, so what? So what I'm going to do is, you got your notes out? What I want to do is, I am going to give, I'm going to bore you to death for three minutes, okay? And I am going to give you a historical survey of most of the entire Old Testament, and you'll understand the Old Testament for the rest of your life in historical context, okay? And here, everybody, y'all with me? Okay, good. Here it is, okay? Now, notice your notes there, okay? For about a hundred years, all of God's people were in one united kingdom. And they were united for about a hundred years, okay? And the dates are on there, okay? That was from 1043 to 931 BC. So you got a united kingdom. Say the word united. United kingdom, okay? And then, the and by the way, they were united because they had three really great leaders, okay? First of all was king. Okay, it's right there. King Saul followed by? David followed by his son? Yep, and then Lance and Parnell. Okay, now, so 
They're united. And then what happens is, tragically, whammo, the whole thing blows up. And it blows up. Anybody know why? Taxes were too high. Read your Bible. It's right there. Taxes were too high. Welcome to California. Anyway, okay? Anyway, what happens is, so they blow up. And what happens is, 10 of the tribes go to the north. Two of the tribes go to the south. The 10 tribes, you all with me? Okay, this is huge. The 10 tribes that go to the north, okay, they form the nation of Israel. The two tribes that go to the south form the nation of Judah. Okay, so everybody got that so far? So that's what's going on, okay? So you got two divided kingdoms, 10 and 2. Now, what happened to the northern kingdom? In, seven, in 722 BC, come on years later, the Assyrians and the Assyrians were vicious, okay? They invade and they slaughter everybody into the northern kingdom, never to come back. So what happens to the southern kingdom? About 100 years later, now look up here, Nehemiah, about it, Nebuchadnezzar is over in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar says, go attack Jerusalem. They send their army to Jerusalem and they attack Jerusalem. The first thing they do is, you got to wreck the city. If you want to wreck the city, wreck the wall. So they wreck the wall and then they can invade the city. But instead of killing everybody, they wreck the wall, wreck the city, but they take everybody captive. And they take them from Jerusalem, from where? Jerusalem, all the way back to Babylon, okay, Daniel chapter 1, and they're going to Babylonianize these people. Matter of fact, here's the, they get them back there, and they go, now the God's people are out of Jerusalem. We're going to Babylonianize these people, okay? It's Operation Erase and Replace. We're going to erase their God-honoring values and replace them with Babylonian cultural values, just like is happening in every culture in history. Every culture in history at some point in time will take you or your kids and will try to erase their faith and replace it with cultural values. Is that going on today? Absolutely. Okay. And so they are in Babylon for how long? 70 long years. They're in exile. So in Nehemiah 1, you see the word exile. They're in, matter of fact, for the rest of your Bible, you read the Bible, you're in the Psalms going, we were weeping in Babylon. That's what they're in exile for. They're weeping in Babylon because they miss God's place for them. Okay. Now, at the end of 70 years, what happens? Okay. The Babylonians go, hey, y'all been great. Thanks for coming. We're done. You can go home. They're like, yeah, but they go slow. They go back in three waves, okay? Now, they're leaving Babylon and going back to? Okay, you're the 11 o'clock caffeinated people. They're going back to Jerusalem, okay? And they go back in three waves. The first wave is led by a guy with a great name, Zerubbabel. Is anybody here named Zerubbabel? I keep, there's got to be one at some point, okay? They led by, and that is in 536 B.C. Now, so they, now, when you get back to Jerusalem, the first thing you have to do is build a wall of protection. So they go back, and they don't get it done. They fail. Get this, 79 years later, there is a second wave that comes back, and that's led by a guy named Ezra. Matter of fact, you want to read about Zerubbabel, chapter, chapter 1 through 6 in Ezra, and Ezra, this season, 13 years later, he goes back. That's Ezra 7 to 10. So they go back. Everybody with me so far? Because it's huge. They go back, and they still don't get the ball. Get this. 
They have left Babylon. They go back to Jerusalem. Yeah, we get to build a future. We're at God's home, all this kind of stuff. And they completely fail building the wall. And here it is. 92 years go by. The wall's not built. If you don't think that's a long time, take your age and add 92. Now how old are you? 92 years of failure, 92 years of frustration, 92 years of being insecure, 92 years of being afraid, 92 years they are stuck because the whole town is discouraged and we can't get it done. 92 years later, you turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, and Nehemiah's brothers come, and Nehemiah says, hey, how's it going in Jerusalem? They got the wall built. Is everything okay? And here's what they hear. Check it out. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province. They're in great trouble. They're in great disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days, this guy's discouraged and turns into a basket case. Now look up here. Nehemiah gets really bad news. When you and I get bad news, it always leads to discouragement. Nehemiah gets bad news, and he gets discouraged, but this is huge. He gets discouraged, but he doesn't stay discouraged. He does four things. And by the way, I'm going to give you the same four things. I believe this. The way God, would you agree, the way God worked then is the way God works now. Nehemiah did four things. And he let go of discouragement. It was replaced with hope. And this guy, instead of being paralyzed by discouragement, is fueled by hope. He moves to Jerusalem in chapter 2 and ignites a thing in Jerusalem. How? What, what's the difference between a discouraged person and somebody with hope? Get this. Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem and says, rallies the people. One guy with hope. That's all it takes. He rallies the people and... They rebuild the wall. Anybody know how long it took them? 52 days. 92 years of we can't do this. One guy with hope arrives. 52 days are gone. All right, wall's built. What's next? God is unleashed. The power of God is unleashed the second anybody lets go of discouragement, catches a vision from God, and it's replaced with hope. You will have a whole different future. Does that make sense? And I believe this. You, no matter what your background is, no matter, some of you are going, oh, man, I needed to be here this morning, man. It's been 92 years since I've been close to God. It's been way too long since I got in shape. Way too long. It's too late for me. It's too late for my finances. It's too late for my marriage. It's too late for my kids. It's too late for all this kind of stuff. I just, I've even had dared to get hope before, and it still didn't work. It's 92 years. I'm giving up. God brought you here this morning. Because he wants to say to you, I have better days ahead and I am working when it doesn't look like I am working, okay? <laughs> However, staying stuck in discouragement will never get you there. And I, Nehemiah took four steps and I'm going to come out swinging because I am convinced if every single one of us in this room took those four steps, we will see the same kind of thing show up from God in our lives. Y'all ready for these? Step, the first thing Nehemiah did, write it in your notes if you're taking notes, write it in your Bible, wherever. First thing he did was this. Nehemiah started by refreshing his spirit. If you're taking notes down, what he really did was he recharged his spiritual batteries. Check this out. Nehemiah, this very subtle in the first couple of verses. Nehemiah says this. Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept. A lot of people do that. Matter of fact, watch this. 
Discouragement is a universal disease. If you have been discouraged by anything in the last, I don't know, year, raise your hand, okay? If you've been discouraged in the last month, raise your hand, it can be everybody in here. If you've been discouraged in the last week, raise your hand, it can be everybody in here. If you've been discouraged today so far, raise your hand, okay, it's everybody in here. If the main source of that discouragement is sitting next to you, don't raise your hand. The, um, <laughs> Nehemiah gets down, but check out his response. He says, I sat down and I mourned and fasted and what? and prayed before the God of heaven. And then it says this, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. And Nehemiah, here's what, look up here, this is very subtle. Nehemiah, in the first half of the verse, is looking only at his problem, so he's expecting only defeat. When you look only at your problems, you will expect only defeat. As the verse goes on, he stops looking only at his problems and he starts looking at God. And then he starts to expect God's going to show up and give me a better future. That's huge. I, as a matter of fact, I, get, I spend most of my life discouraged. I'll wake up in the morning and go, oh, what broke today? You know, all this kind of stuff. Guy pastor at church. I wake up. As a matter of fact, some guy walked up to me and he goes, I want to do what you do. And I go, what do you think I do? And he goes, you speak to thousands of people. I go, no, I don't. I get up every morning and go, what just caught on fire that I got to put out? Okay? And you know what's interesting is? I've developed a discipline. And every time I'm down, here's what I do. I just, I just I'll look in a mirror and I go, Ray, you know better than this. You are discouraged not because of your problem. You are discouraged because you're focusing only on your problem, so you're expecting only defeat. You know better. Start focusing on God and His promises, and you can expect God to give you a better future, and off, you're off. Does this make sense? You're liberated from it. How important is this? Um, maybe the best way to praise it like this. I had a lady tell me this story one time. She said, my kid was the wildest, most rambunctious kid you've ever met in your life. Anybody raise one of these? Just out loud, ADD on steroids. Um, the, and she said, I made a big mistake. Were any of you that kid? <laughs> yeah. Lance. The, um, and... And so she said, I made a huge mistake. I took my family to a really expensive restaurant when my son was small and boisterous. And she said, we're at this restaurant right in the middle. And the food came and my son said, hey, can I say, he said about this laugh, can I say the prayer? And the whole restaurant turns. And before, she said, before I could say no, he folds his hands and bursts into this prayer. Dear God, thank you, Lord, for the food and the fork and the, and, and they said, and Lord, and, and Lord, I will thank you even more if mom gets me ice cream for dessert <laughs> and liberty and justice for all, amen. <laughs> this lady said, though, along with laughter from the other customers nearby, they heard an older woman remark, kids today, and the whole restaurant heard this, including her son, kids today asking God for ice cream, why I never, that kid's a disgrace. She said, my son heard that, burst into tears, and said, Mommy, is God mad at me? Did I do it wrong? And she says, as he sobbed, and I held him and assured him God was certainly not mad at him, an older guy who heard the entire thing walked all the way over her table. The whole restaurant watched him. This older guy leaned on our table, and she thought, what now? And he pointed his finger right at my son and said, young man, I happen to know God. 
And I happen to know that God thought that was a fantastic prayer. And her son started, started crying. He said, really? And he goes, cross my heart. I know God. Then he pointed to the lady and said, young man, too bad that old bat doesn't ask God for ice cream. <laughs> and then he had a great line. Check, some of you should amen this line. He said, you know, a little ice cream could be good for your soul sometimes. The, um, this lady said, last year at the end of that dinner, I bought my son the biggest dish of ice cream they would bring him. His eyes got really big like sausages. Then without a word, he picked it up. He walked over. He set it down in front of the lady. And he said, here, lady, ice cream's good for the soul sometimes. My soul's good already, so this is for you. <laughs> the reason I told you that story is this. The book of Nehemiah, the entire Bible, the single most important thing about you is what shape is your soul in? The single, why is this such a big deal? I just trained a bunch of leaders. Matter of fact, I trained 12 CEOs and told them the same thing. Here's nothing, nothing great ever happens through you until it happens in you. Nothing great ever happens through you until it happens in you, which means if you want a better future, start letting God do better things in you. If you want a better marriage, you don't start with your marriage. You start by letting God do new things in you. you matter of fact, showing up to church, brilliant. This church is a great choice. Show up here. Don't miss everyone. Every time you're here, put yourself in settings because not when great things happen in you, then they happen through you. Does that make sense? This is huge. Step one, the single most important thing about you is are great things happening in my soul from God. Nehemiah is smarter. He's a great man of action. He's one of history's great leaders. The first thing is, he goes, I'm not going to spring into action. I'm going to sit down, connect with God, and I'm going to get the fire lit again and then go after it. Some of you, God brought some of you here this morning to get your attention to say, you need to get your fire back. You need to get your hopes back up. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired. It is time to let God do a new thing inside you. And quit blaming your husband for why you're miserable. And quit blaming your wife for your miserable. Quit blaming Lance for why you're miserable. Quit blaming Trump for why you're miserable. Quit blaming our governor. In other words, the reason all of us are miserable are we're not letting God do great things in my life. Nehemiah walked into miserable circumstances, and 52 days later, everything was fixed because he had hope. That's, by the way, that's just point one. I got to keep moving. You all ready? The second thing he does is this. He relies on God. The second thing he does is this. He starts to rely on God. I love this. Because the second Nehemiah goes after, he moves to Jerusalem. And in chapter 2, he goes, he gets there. All right, we are going to build the wall. God's going to do something great. The minute that happens, he gets criticized. By the way, do you think Lance gets criticized? Oh, good Lord. Do you think I get criticized? How many of you have ever heard Basa get criticized? Yeah, you know what? Uh, they, I, I'm just used to it, okay? Remember, I told our staff, let's just put the blinders on, keep our eyes on Jesus, and do what God's called us to do, okay? And ignore the critics, the Christian Taliban's out there, let them have their day, okay? The, um, and that, that exact thing happens here. And watch this. Nehemiah starts to build something for God, and here's a, but when Sanballat the Horonite 
and Tobiah the Ammonite, the Horonite and the Ammonite, get up tight, and Geshub the Aram heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered and said to them, here is one of the great phrases in the entire Bible. This is worth memorizing and living for the next year. I put this on a mirror and spent an entire year saying, he says this, just look at me, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will arise and build. The, it's a two-part verse. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will arise and build. Say it with me. The God of heaven. Okay, y'all ready? The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will arise and build. The first part of that verse, the God of heaven will give us success. That's what I believe. Second, we, his servants, will arise. That's what I do. The first part is devotion. The second part is action, okay? And point two is the first part. He says, I am going to rely on God no matter what. In, now, why is Nehemiah wrong? Here's what's going on. You know what Nehemiah is saying? The God we serve is able to change the future no matter what the past is like. Anybody need that this morning? I feel like God's probably speaking. The God we serve is able to change your future no matter what your past, but it's been so long since I conquered that internet habit. I can't give it. It's been so long. The God I, we serve, and I can kind of prove this. Um, this is kind of embarrassing to admit. Um, I grew up in an executive, jet-set, totally pagan, atheist Southern California home. My uh, mom and dad were big deals. My dad was president of a company down in Pasadena, and, um, and he was an atheist, so I became an atheist. And uh, matter of fact, when I was 18 years old, I talked a guy out of becoming a Christian. This does not look good on the pastor's resume. And, and that, that's my background. My mom and dad ended up, they were really great, but then they became, they started drinking, they started drinking too much, and they became alcoholics. My dad became an alcoholic, rageaholic, my mom became an alcoholic, and they blew their marriage apart, blew everything apart, his job, marriage, the whole thing got blown apart by alcoholism. And then my mom and dad got divorced, and, but what was interesting is this, their divorce didn't surprise anybody. Their marriage blew apart. But we all, everybody expected it to because that's what happens in my family, okay? And matter of fact, neither grandparents' marriage lasted. Their parents' parents didn't last. My mom had three sisters. One was married and divorced three times. One of the marriages lasted three days. I do. I don't. Um, the, her other sister married and divorced. I've got sisters. One's been married and divorced three times. The other uh, is in prison or was in prison. Um, I mean, that's my family. And so nobody was surprised they got divorced. I end up, you know, going to this incredible Christian church. And I want to say something very politically incorrect. Is that okay here? Okay, I know everybody's down on the Christian church and criticizes the church and books have been written with like death by church and all that kind of stuff. What happens is this buddy of mine, when I'm 18, I talk God of becoming a Christian. He goes, ah, come. I, he hauls me to church. And I have never, it took six months, but I have never been the same. And I just want to say something real politically incorrect these days, and here it is. I love the Christian church. I know that's, I love the, and let me tell you why. It was the Christian church that introduced me to Jesus when I was talking to people out of becoming a Christian. It was the Christian church that healed my image of God and myself. 
It was the Christian church that challenged me to grow. It was the Christian church that gave me the opportunity to serve and fail without excommunicating. It was the Christian church that let me lead worship one time. (laughs) And it was the Christian church that helped me figure out I should never do that again to the glory of God. It was the Christian church that healed my image of God, healed my image of and it was the Christian church that healed my view of marriage. And I meet Christ, I get into this discipleship church, and it heals my view of marriage. Last year, my wife Carol and I celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary, okay? Which means we have the longest running marriage in the history of my entire family tree. Matter of fact, we took our family tree and we cut it down and we used it for kindling to build a whole new tree. And I just love it when somebody comes up and says, oh, refresh your spirit, connect to God, rely on God. That doesn't make that much difference. All I have to do is pull out my family tree and go, are you kidding? Jesus Christ, a relationship with God and getting into a great Christian church broke 150 years of past family patterns, okay? Rely on God. Refresh your spirit. Your future will never be the same. Now, that verse has a second half, and here it is. Okay, right in number three, okay? Here it is. Refuse to settle. Number three, refuse to settle. Because that verse says this, the God of heaven will give us success. That's, I'm relying on God. Now, after that, though, it says this, we, his servants, will arise and build. Most Christians these days, they're the first half, but they're not going to build anything. Lance, I, by the way, I listened to Parnell's sermon last week. Phenomenal. Was it Lance's sermon? He had two questions. It was brilliant. I wrote them down. Lance said, this series is about two things. Who are you following and what are you building with your life? That was brilliant. I thought, I'm going to steal that in Jesus' name. The, um, it's absolutely brilliant. That verse, that verse is saying the same thing. The God of heaven will give us success. Who are you following? Who are you trusting? And we as servants, will. what are you building with your life? And I couldn't wait to get to this point in this sermon because there has been something that's been bothering me about Christians all over the world. Just got back from Ireland. And, and I then wanted to come here and bother Bridgeway with this, okay? And bother all of you, because I think there's a new idol out there, and it's not all the old idols, you know, materialism, hedonism, they're still there. There's a new idol in America, and it's impacting, it's a Christian idol, and it's impacting Christians, and it's impacting parents, and, and I think it's wrecking everybody's future, and here it is. It's the idol of safety. Play it safe. Helicopter parenting. They don't go outside until they're seven. <laughs> so I made a list. Would you agree? We are the most seat-belted, airbag, peanut-avoiding, gluten-free, bike-helmeted, knee-pad-wearing, hyper-insured, sunscreen-slathering, massively medicated, password-protected, inoculated generation in history. Okay? And all it's done is make more, everybody more afraid of everything. Everybody stay in the boat. And, and so, now I'm not saying get out of here and take stupid risk for the sake of taking stupid risk. What I'm saying, though, is this, the idol of safety is wrecking our faith. And the, here's the problem. 
you can play it safe your entire life. You can never serve. You can never tithe. You can never get in a small group because that's scary. You, you can lock. Matter of fact, uh, is your car locked in the parking lot? Yeah, look around. Okay, good idea. Um, the, um, you can lock your own. You can live in a gated community. You can, never, you can play it safe your entire life and still die in a stupid freak accident. So I Googled <laughs> stupid freak accident. I'm not making this up. In London, at the turn of the century, a giant vat of beer exploded and a 25-foot wall of beer went out into the street and eight people drowned in beer. Some of you are going, well, if I'm going. In 1910, in Boston, Massachusetts, a giant vat of molasses exploded and molasses oozed out into the street, killing 21 people. Apparently, 21 very slow people, okay? Like, <laughs> molasses, walk for your lives. The, um, and, and I made a list. Here it is. Would you agree with this? Most Christians never start generously giving because it doesn't feel safe. Most Christians never take a stand, doesn't feel safe. Most Christians never take a risk, never share their faith, never serve, never get involved. Most Christians never do any of that stuff because it doesn't feel safe. And the problem is this, playing it safe, playing it safe shrinks our lives, shrinks our faith, shrinks our impact and leaves, shrinks God, shrinks God's promises and leaves you and I with a shrunken up, shriveled heart. And then you die at the end of a safe life wondering why God gave you one life to build something, one life to make a difference. And I wasted it, playing it safe. And I will have millions of years to regret that for all of eternity. The God of heaven will give us success, but we, his servants of every single person here, has got to get up and build something with the one life God put you here for. Does that make sense? This is huge. And the problem is this. I had, it's Friday. It's two years. It's a couple years ago. I've just finished writing this. And, um, and matter of fact, John Harris or Valinsky or somebody, could somebody bring me one of my books there in the lobby? Um, I just finished writing this. And um, I wrote a chapter on don't play it safe. Every single thing I put in this chapter about stop playing safe is in that chapter. The title of the chapter was, if you want to walk on water, you got to get off your couch. And, and that's Friday. Now, it's Monday morning, so I've totally forgotten about this play it safe stuff, and I get a phone call. And I get a phone call from Don Brewster. Don is a hero. Don was at Adventure Church, and a few years ago, he and then we had his back, so we'd kind of done a bunch of this together. He went and found two towns in Cambodia, both towns, Siem Reap and Svepak, half the girls, almost all the girls in both towns were sex trafficked. Think about it, little girls. Some of those girls sold out to pedophiles seven times a night. Some of those girls as young as four years old. And he goes over there and starts doing, and, and rescues half the girls in each town. And then he gets, and he calls me on this money. He goes, and he goes, Ray, the freakiest thing just happened. The general over all sex trafficking called and said, I need to see you. And he thought, I'm going to get arrested or thrown out of the country. He goes, I go to the general's office. I'm all nervous. And the general says, um, he goes, no, I don't want to kick you out. He said, 
I like what you're doing. He goes, and I want, here, just toss it. Uh, thank you. Um, he goes, he goes, I don't want to kick you. I want to, he goes, he goes, the cops here are so corrupt that work for me. He said, we haven't, we haven't made an arrest in 10 years. He goes, every time we go in, the paid off cops warn the pimps. All the pimps are gone. All the girls are gone. He goes, they're so, he said, Don said, what do you need? He goes, he goes, well, here's what I want to do. He goes, I've been impressed with you. I've been watching you. He goes, I want to team up. I want to form a SWAT team of some Westerners you trust and only Cambodians I trust, and we will form a SWAT team, equip them, unleash them, and try to make some real arrests and rescue a lot of girls. And Don goes, he goes, are you in? Don goes, I'm in. He goes, what do you need? And the guy said, here's the problem. This is Cambodia. We have no money. It's going to take a quarter million dollars, $250,000 to get this thing rolling, and we don't have that. Do you know anywhere you can get $250,000 fast? Don goes, yeah, there's this crazy church called Bayside. Let me call Ray. So he phones me. It's Monday morning. I have just written this play. He tells me the whole thing, and I'm going, and here's what I say to him. Three days after I wrote this, don't play it safe stuff. I said, Don, man, that's awesome. The problem is this. I just talked about money for six weeks in a row in church. And I'm afraid if I, t- matter of fact, nobody likes that, do you? So I said, I'm afraid if I talk about, Jesus talked about it, but pastors don't. I said, if I talk about it one more time, and we'd already given them over a million bucks. I said, if I talk about it one more time, they're going to throw me out. I said, it's just bad time. And I actually said this on the phone. It's just not safe right now to do this. He goes, ah, it's okay, man. He goes, I got your back. So he goes, thanks anyway. Love you. He hangs up. I hang up. Raise your hand if you've ever had God on your back. (laughs) I mean, this is an embarrassing story to tell you guys. And so for the next 48 hours, I'm miserable. I finally call our senior staff, all our pastors together, and I tell them the whole thing Don told me. And I tell them SWAT team, all this kind of stuff. And they're going, that's awesome. We should do it. What kind of cold-hearted jerk could ever say no to that? (laughs) Right here. So I called Don back. And I go, send me a business plan. I mean, I figured it'd take a few weeks, buy me some time. 30 minutes later, wham, you know, emails me a business plan. Folks, I have, Lance and I, we get like, we need Bibles. We need, not this one, man. We need surveillance vans. We need two of them. We need bullets for Jesus. We need best, all this kind of stuff. Uh, 250,000 bucks. So I'm going, how are we going to get this? I'm like, Christmas Eve is coming up. So I went, I'm just going to take a second offering on Christmas Eve. And if people don't like it, tough. And, uh, and so I got up and I told them the story. I said, we're going to take a second offering. We're not keeping a dime of this. We need 250,000 bucks. We're going to rescue girls, all this kind of stuff. And I'm here to tell you, our people did not give $250,000 on Christmas Eve. They did give over $400,000 on Christmas Eve, which... We didn't keep a dime of. We sent the entire thing over there, and that SWAT team has been operational now and to date has rescued over 500 girls. And even better than that, not not only that, they have rescued over 500 girls, and check this out. They have arrested over 64 now really bad guys, all of whom are in prison where they can never again hurt young girls, okay? So, tonight when your head hits the pillow, there are 500 girls that won't be abused, that all, all led to Christ, and now, and this makes sense, and bad guys that can never again hurt young girls. Is that awesome? 
The entire thing almost didn't happen for one reason, me. Because I want to do, play it safe. Plan it safe will limit your lives. The second, by the way, all Christians I know that are, that are serious Christians, they're like, I love the first half of that verse. The God of heaven will give us success. You know, Jesus loves me. This I know. Pastor Lance told me so. That's all I got. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you or I are saved to serve, not to sit. We are saved to spend the rest of our life unleashing the power of God in a world desperately in need of people who arrive with hope, get our change agents for Jesus Christ. That makes sense? It's huge. And by the way, this, this whole thing, after that conversation with my daughter, I wrote a book called Hope Quotient, okay? And basically, it took seven years to write it because it was a massive study. And there, it's the only book on hope ever written that isn't about hope. It is about the seven things. These are four. The seven things that if you will build them into your life, you will have hope. And if you don't build them into your life, you will not have hope. All the proceeds of the sales, this, I don't take a dime, but it all goes to what's going on over there. That make sense? At the, it, this all goes to those two towns in Cambodia through AIM. It's huge. You got one life. Go for it. And the last point, and I'll wrap up with this, is this. It is refuse to give up because it is going to get discouraging. It is going to get discouraging. And halfway through in Nehemiah chapter 4, here's what happened. They quit. Now, why did they quit? You and I will quit almost every time when the four Fs happen, and here they are. Anybody been through these? Number one is this, fatigue. The strength of the laborers is given. Anybody been fatigued? Okay, good. Check the second one out. There's so much rubble. Frustration. It's called having kids. <laughs> Third, they literally go, we can't rebuild the wall. I knew we could. For 92 years, we've been saying it can't happen. We can't rebuild the wall. So they quit. And the last one is this, fear. Our enemies said it before they know it or see it. We will kill them and put an end to the work. They are fatigued, frustrated. They have failed. They feel like failures, and they're afraid. Anybody felt those four emotions? And you know what's awesome? Here's God's prescription. You know what God says? Go back to work. It's all, he oh, you poor thing. No, get back to work. It, what do they do? It says this, we continued to work. And 52 days later, a miracle's happened and the wall's up. In other words, well, my marriage doesn't do well. What does God want to say to you? Go work on it. Does that make sense? Our kids are becoming teenagers. Great, invest in them. In other words, we continue to work. And these four things, here, if you want to open it up, this is God's prescription for anything happening. Great things happen in you, then check it out. You refresh your spirit. It starts with God. And if you're not a Christian here, I, I was an atheist, so I get it, man. If you're not a Christian here, I feel so bad for you. You are missing out on a power source that is off the charts, okay? The um, it, re, re, refresh your spirit. Second is rely on God. That frees you from anxiety. Third is refuse to settle. That finishes you from limiting your future and everything else. And the last one is this, refuse to give up, which guarantees your future. And maybe the best way to summarize this is this. They have been discouraged and depressed, and they thought the game was over for 92 years. A, a buddy of mine in Chicago told me the most emotional day of his life was his first day in Little League baseball. Do parents act like jerks here at Little League games? He said, he said, 
It was the worst day of my life. He said, I'm eight years old, so I'm the smallest kid on the team. I weigh like 13 pounds. The uniform hangs off me like it's on a hanger. And he goes, and it got worse. He goes, every relative I had came to this, every relative, 60 of them, came to see my first Little League game at this little baseball field in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. He goes, it got worse. I played right field. Even when you're eight, you know why you're in right field. And he said, and it got worse. I struck out in front of my relatives. I struck out three straight times. I was so scared. I was shaking, and I didn't even swing. I'm a total wreck, a complete failure, and my relatives now know it. And they said, it got worse. He said, the nightmare is the seventh and last inning of the last day of the game. Sun's starting to set. He said, bases are loaded. We're two outs. We're behind by one run. And he said, I'm up. He goes, I walk up to home plate. The depre- I know I got no shot at this. And he goes, the second I looked out to the mound, I realized, oh, my gosh, I got no shot of getting a hit because the pitcher has six, eight, and has a beard. At least that's how a 10-year-old looked at my little 8-year-old self. And he goes, I step in. I'm shaking. He goes, everybody's now standing up there. They're like, he goes, I, the pressure's. He goes, the guy winds up. He goes, I didn't even see the pitch. My eyes are closed. He goes, I'm so scared. He goes, they hit the catcher's mitt. I heard the umpire go, strike one. Ball goes back out. The guy winds up. He goes, he comes ripping in, hits the mitt, strike two. It goes back out. He said, I got out. Of, he goes, I got to do something. He goes, I got out of the batter's box. And then I made a major mistake. I looked around. And he said, on their side, a hundred people are standing up screaming for me to strike out and lose the game for their team. He goes, they're hang, you know, they hang on the fence at Little League Games screaming. And he goes, he goes, and on the other side, he goes, 150 people, every relative I got are standing up screaming for me to get a hit, win the game, and be a hero, and restore the family name. <laughs> he goes, I thought, if I don't get a hit, my life's over. I'm a loser. He goes, I get in the box, and he goes, I started swinging during his windup. He goes, for the first time ever, I saw the pitch. It's coming in. I'm swinging. He threw this thing as hard as he could. Everybody's screaming. I swing as hard as I could at this thing and miss. He goes, the ball hits the catcher's mitt. The umpire says, strike three. You're out. Game over. And then he said, I heard two things. I heard a huge cheer from this side because I had struck out and lost the game for their team. And then he said, I heard something I will never forget. An audible groan of disappointment from every relative I have and 125 people. And I knew I was failed. I had lost. I was a loser. He goes, I dropped the bat at home plate, and I started the longest walk of my life. He goes, the other team gathers up, and I walked right by him there, two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? And then he points at me. And, um, and he goes, I walk by, I go to the dugout. Well, you know how sensitive nine-year-old boys are? You know, you idiot, jerk, nerd, loser, you know? He goes, so I start crying. He goes, crying made it worse. I go to the end of the dugout. He goes, I'm sobbing. I put my hat down over my eyes. I put my jacket over. I'm sitting there, and I'm sobbing and sobbing and sobbing for what must have been 15 minutes. I'm shaking and nobody's coming near me. And he goes, it got real quiet. The team's gone. He goes, I can still hear the gravel under the car tires as the cars are pulling out of that little Iowa baseball field. And he said, then it got real quiet and only then did I hear this noise. 
or this noise. And he said, I heard this voice say, hey, son, get back up. The game ain't over. He goes, I heard again, hey, son, get back up. The game ain't over. He goes, it got a little, hey, son, get back up. The game ain't over. He goes, I, I take my cap, I take my jacket off, take my cap off. I rub my eyes. He goes, it was fuzzy and freaky. I've been crying for so long. He goes, and he goes, I look out. And he goes, and there on the pitcher's mound was my dad. And he's got a ball and he's got a mitt and he looks totally at peace. And he goes, hey, son, get back up. Game ain't over. And then I realize nobody's left. All 60 of my relatives are in the field. Little diaper kids running on the infield. Aunt Emma with that funky dingle ball hat women only wear in Iowa is in left field. My blind Uncle Harold is trying to find right field. And he goes, he goes, my, he goes, my dad was just awesome. He goes, hey, son, get back up. The game ain't over. He goes, I look at home plate. The bat is right where I left it. He goes, so I sheepishly walk up to home plate. And he goes, my dad, he goes, my dad that day was a hero. He just kept, and then everybody started cheering. He goes, that's okay, son. Hey, I, game ain't over. He goes, he pitched, I missed. He, every pitch he threw. Son, the game ain't over. He just kept saying, the game ain't over. The 15th pitch. I go, whack, I hit it in left field. He goes, I'm at home plate. I go, yes. He goes, my dad goes, what are you doing? Run. Okay, where's first base? Never been there. Oh, down there. He goes, <laughs> run to first base just in time to see Aunt Emma. And I throw the ball to center field. He goes, cool, double. I run to second base just in time to see the center fielder throw the ball to right field. He goes, I start running to third base. He goes, it's what I call now a conspiracy of grace. They were screwing up on purpose to make sure I got home safe. But he goes, really, I'm eight years old. At that point, all I know is they've thrown to a ball to a blind guy. I'm going to score. He goes, I ran third. I come running into home plate. I dive. He goes, I slide across home plate. He goes, everybody starts running in the infield cheering. And he goes, I jump up. And he goes, I dusted myself off. And he goes, then I saw him. Right behind home plate on one knee with tears streaming down his face <laughs> uh, is my dad. And tears are streaming down his face. And he held his arms out really wide. And he said, nice slide. You're safe at home. And he said, I threw myself into my dad's arms. And he wrapped his arms around me. And tears of his streaming down my neck. And my dad kept saying, I told you you were safe at home. And then he stood up and he said, and I told you, the game wasn't over. And he kept saying, the game's never over. The game's, and he said, that emotional day of my life turned into one of the best days of my life. That day, because as I, wa that day, all 60 of my relatives carried me off the field cheering. If Jesus showed up and walked right up to you this morning, what do you think he'd say? Most of us feel like such a failure that we're like, oh, if Jesus comes to me, he's going to go, I got a list of you've been striking out. Because we all do, don't we? Jesus wouldn't say that. Jesus Christ would come up to you just like he did in the book of Nehemiah. When they were 92 years, game's over. Jesus would come to you and he would say, get back up. The game ain't 
over. The game's not over for your marriage. The game's not over for your kids that have walked away from God. God's not done working. The game's not over for your health. The game's not over for your finances. And the game is not over. The game's never over. Take these four steps, grab a bat, and get back up to the plate because get back up. The game ain't over because you're safe in the arms of an ever-loving, all-powerful God who welcomes you home every time. I'm overtime. All God's people said... Amen.